We're looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 52. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little, far, a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into, enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. The Bible says that all men are like grass and all of man's glory is like the flower of the field. And that the grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. So let me pray for us before we look at it further tonight. Heavenly Father, we know you to be a God who speaks. You are a God who is pleased to reveal himself to us. And Father, you have done that ultimately in your word. Your Word incarnate in Jesus. Your Word written in the Scripture. And so, Father, we pray that You would 
that you would help us tonight to hear you. That you would be with us, even here in Elliston Chapel, that you would be with us by your Holy Spirit. You would open our ears so that we might hear. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was working on, as I was working on this uh, sermon, um, I got on the internet for some reason and ended up coming across this blog. You know how the internet works, right? You end up who knows where. And I came across this random blog, um, and it ranked the top 25 greatest movie heroes of all time. And it was, I enjoyed reading through it. And so as I was reading through it, I came to, um, to number nine. And this person said, for them, the, the ninth greatest movie hero is Batman from The Dark Knight. And this is what it said. This was their comment about why. Why he's a great hero. Even though no one appreciates him, and the girl of his dreams doesn't want him, and people hate him, Batman continues to do his duty. He knows someone has to protect the city from evil and destruction, and he chooses to take up that challenge. He doesn't think twice. He just does his duty. Most heroic moment, colon, the entire movie. And as I, as I read that, I thought, I think that's actually, in, in a lot of ways, a really great picture of what we see about Jesus in this passage. Because in this passage, everybody is going to bail on Jesus. Everybody's going to abandon him. And yet, even still, he, he presses on. He presses on all alone as the great hero, right? sort of marching, heading towards his death. And so if you've been with us, you know that uh, this semester, which is almost over, uh, we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, and our theme is wide-eyed wonder, because that's the way Mark... That's the way Mark comes across. Um, He writes with this sort of unique, almost infectious excitement. Um, Mark's gospel moves really quickly. It focuses on Jesus' action. Um, You almost get the impression that, uh, that Mark is like a little kid that wants to tell you something exciting, and he he's so excited that he can't get the words out fast enough. And so tonight, what, uh, what I want us to see that I think hopefully will leave us with that wide-eyed wonder is what Jesus says in verse, uh, it's about what Jesus says in verse 27. That what's about to happen, and what we just read in the passage, was a fulfillment of Zechariah 13, 7. That the shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep will be scattered. So in other words, that as Jesus is facing his death, Right, we've said this uh, the last several weeks, that Mark's gospel divides in two in the second half. He's really showing us what Jesus has come to do. Um, highlighting the fact that Jesus is going to be, or was the suffering servant. That he's God in the flesh, but he's going to be the suffering hero. And that what we see is that as he is... As he's facing his death, as he's heading towards death on the cross, that he's going to do it all alone. That he's going to be abandoned by everybody. And so tonight I want to draw uh, 
basically three lessons. We're going to answer three questions and therefore draw three lessons from seeing Jesus prepare to face his death uh, in the midst of this uh, abandonment. So first, we're going to ask the question, why is he alone? And answering that, we're going to see a lesson about disciples or a lesson about people. Secondly, how does he face it alone? And we're going to see a lesson about Jesus' humanity in that. And thirdly, what does he face alone? What is it that he's facing? And we're going to see there a lesson about Jesus' grace and his love. Okay, so first, why is he alone? And again, uh, sort of subtitle, a lesson about disciples or a lesson about people. Um, I think in some ways we can learn a lot about uh, the disciples and by extension ourselves. But, uh, yeah, unfortunately, really none of it is good, or not much of it at least. Because I think in, in probably the most obvious sense, we have to answer that question of why is Jesus alone He's alone because his disciples left him. He's alone because they bailed. And so I want to take just a few minutes here in this first point to sort of drill down into that and take a look at what's going on with that. All right, so look at their response to Jesus' claim, right? This sort of starts out by Jesus saying that they're going to fall away. In verse 29, Peter speaks up and he says, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus responds to him. And he says that actually, Peter, uh, before the, essentially says, before the night's up, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter doubles down on it. And he says, uh, he says, I will die before I deny you. And if you notice in the text, all the disciples say the same thing. Right? They're all in the same boat with Peter. They all say, no way, not going to happen. And look, the, the theme of abandon, abandonment just continues to grow from there, right? Um, we're going to see, uh, he's going to go and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they, he asked them to just stay awake, pray with me. And they can't do it. They leave him on his own. And then, of course, he's going to, you know, we saw he, he gets arrested, and we didn't read it tonight, but, of course, Peter does follow through with that uh, selling him out, uh, denying him. So what's going on with that? What is it about Peter and these disciples that they, that they think that way? Um, and here, here's what I want you to see. They've actually already done it. They've actually already left him, denied him in a sense. Right, think about it. Because at first glance, it might, it might seem really noble when Jesus says, you're going to leave me, that they say, like, no way. We'll die with you. We're not leaving you. But if you think about it for a second, Peter's gut reaction to Jesus saying, this is what's going to happen, his gut reaction is to say, no, 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 you're wrong, Jesus. That's not me. I'm better than that. And so right there, I think you see a, the, the kernel of what's going on in the heart of the person uh, that abandons Jesus. And I think we could sum it up by saying pride. Look, it's, a re, it's a refusal to acknowledge the truth about 
ourselves. The truth about our, our weakness and our sin. Right? Why is Peter's reaction not to beg Jesus for help? Why doesn't Jesus say, you're going to leave me? Why doesn't he say, oh no. Please, please help me not to do that. And his reaction is, that's not his reaction because he doesn't think he's capable of that. Or at least he doesn't want to admit that that's true of himself. In other words, he, he and the disciples, and I, and I think we do the exact same thing, they're not quick to repent. Uh, they're, they're really, in some sense, blinded to their, their, their weakness. And look, I think, you know, this is one of those stories that if you don't get behind what's going on there and get to the bottom of it, it's really hard to apply to us. You know, if... Um, if you don't get at the, at the root of it, at this pride, then it's just like, all right, I guess there's a lesson here for people that you know, are publicly asked to deny the faith or something like that. But when you boil it down to its core, it's a, it's a hesitancy to, to repent. Uh, it, it's, and if we look at ourselves, we all, we all have that natural um, tendency in our heart to think we're, we're, not, we're not that bad. Right? Like, we might even say, look, I know I'm a sinner. I am not perfect. But come on. I'm not capable of, of that. But look, if these are, are the disciples. They followed Jesus around. They lived with Jesus for whatever, three some odd years. And they were very capable of it. So I think you and I should at the very least have a healthy mistrust of ourselves. Um, that we shouldn't give ourselves the benefit of the doubt when it comes to sin and what our sinful hearts are capable of. Right? I think we have to see our tendency to minimize our sin. Um, to, to think something, or think things like, look, it's, it's just a little pornography. It's not like I'm addicted to it. It's not that big of a deal. Look, we just, we just hook up every once in a while. It's not, like, it's not like that's just a regular occurrence. Um, it, it's not gossip. I mean, it's, it's the truth. I think they needed to know. I'm not, I'm not a gossip. Right? Or whatever it is for you. Whatever it is for me. I think we need to be quick to see that our... We love to look at our... And say, like, it, it's just not that big of a deal. I, I kind of have it right where I want it. And I think what we see here, right, is that's not the truth. Right? We need to be quick to recognize that and just as quick to run to Jesus with it. Because, look, hear me, the answer is not to say, like, all right, look, um, you've got to recognize that little sin's not so little, so you better get it right. Get on top of that. No, the answer is to recognize that and, and then run to Jesus with it. And say, I, I, need, I need you to help me. All right, so we see a lesson about our, ourselves, about the disciples. Secondly, uh, let's take a look at how does Jesus face, um, face this or face death alone. And really what I want you to see here, what, what I think we learn is a lesson about Jesus' Jesus's humanity. 
I think in a lot of ways this is the highlight of the, of the passage. Uh, because, yeah, we see so much about how Jesus actually is a real person. Right? For about 2,000 years now, Christians have uh, maintained from what you see in the Scripture that Jesus somehow is 100% God. He is, he is God in the flesh. Absolutely divine. And, not but, but and, He is also 100% human. Jesus was a real, wasn't is, a real person. And now look, that may not, that may be like the you know, biggest no-duh you've heard here at RUF, but I bet, if, if you're like me, I bet we all tend to default to thinking about Jesus as not being a real person. That, that Jesus didn't have real, doesn't have real feelings or real emotions. Um, if you're like me, you probably default to, to picturing Jesus as, um, as you see him like on a, a lot of commercials or maybe in some movies, right? I think this is a big problem with, it's a whole other discussion, right? But, um, you know, when you see him in, in some commercial, I feel like so often he's, he's depicted as this sort of slow motion, um, almost like Jesus robot. You know, I saw one commercial where it was uh, the scene where he uh, stops the storm. You know, they wake him up and the storm's raging. And he just sort of calmly and slowly, uh, sort of dispassionately stands up and says, Peace. Be still. Right? And the storm stops. I'm like, it, it, that's just not, that's not real. Right? Almost, like, yeah, like it's some sort, like Jesus is sort of the, um, a Jesus robot and he's been pre-programmed to do the Jesus thing and it's just, you know, like must heal person now, you know. And, and that's just what it feels like. And I think this is one of the, gosh, one of the best passages in Scripture that just shatters that, uh, that picture. Any thought of Jesus as being like that. Uh, let's look at a few things that we see here about him that shows that he's very real. Number one, uh, did you notice that as he's facing his death, his upcoming death, what does he want? He wants to be with his friends. It's a, he's coming up, he is facing his darkest hour. And what does he do? He asks his best friends to, to come be with him and be around him. Even his three closest friends. Peter, James, and John. He doesn't want to be alone. It's such a yeah, vivid expression of his humanity. And it's interesting that he, he takes those three disciples, right, that were with him, uh, that he took uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, that saw, uh, they saw the curtain pulled back and they saw him in his divinity, right? And now he brings them along and, and they see this. We're going to pick back up on that in a minute. Um, another thing, secondly, he shows, he shows and he tells these friends of his, Peter, James, and John, his real emotions. Right? They're written all over his face. Verse 33, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Right? They could just see it. Uh, and then he tells them that he's very sorrowful even to death. But Jesus basically looks at his friends and he says, what I am facing, what I am staring down the barrel of is overwhelming me. 
what I am heading towards, it, it is washing over me and it, it, is, it feels like it is killing me. Right? Luke tells us that, um, that he's so overcome and so distressed by this, what he's facing that he, he's pouring sweat and his sweat begins to be bloody. And apparently doctors say that that can actually happen, right? The whatever capillaries in your forehead can burst when you're under such stress and, and you just essentially sweat blood. It's incredibly human. Uh, thirdly, he wants and needs to pray to God the Father. But what an amazing thing, right? That Jesus, Jesus who is God Himself, He is God in the flesh. And yet at the same time, in his humanity, he falls on his face before God. And what he prays is even, in some sense, more shocking. Look, look we're, we're treading, when you, when you are treading in these waters, they are, they are incredibly deep and mysterious. Right? To hear Jesus say these things, it's incredibly profound. Right? Three times he prays and he, he asks God, and again, with all kinds of emotion, not like, not like Jesus is reading the script, like, all right, so this, okay, this is when I pray that the cup pass from me. Okay, Jesus, please, our Father, please let the cup pass from me, right? With all of the emotion that we've talked about, he begs God three times that if there's any other way to do this, please let this, please let there be some other way. I think it's fair to say that Jesus is, is afraid of what's coming. And that's kind of weird to say. Um, if you want to go back to that Batman illustration that I had earlier, uh, if you noticed, I was actually very careful, as I am with all of my words. That's uh, a joke, thank you. <laughs> to say that um, in most ways, it's a good picture of what we see in this passage. Because in some ways, it's actually the opposite. Right, the, that uh, blogger said that Batman was heroic because he knows that someone has to stop the evil, and he quote doesn't think twice; he just does his duty, which is what we think about when we think hero. Right? We think somebody that no matter what the odds, they basically look at it and they say, you know what? I'm not scared. I don't feel pain. I don't. I'm never fear. Feel fear. Bring it on. And that's what a hero is. And that is not what you see here. Right? Um, Jesus does think twice, I guess we could say. Because he's a real person. All right, so what does that mean for us? Look, it means that we have a, a Savior that can identify with us, that, that knows very much what it's like. Um, to face dark times. He knows exactly what it's like to go through uh, being abandoned by your friends. Right? I think we've talked about the stats on loneliness before, maybe even this semester, but look, there are a lot of you that are lonely. And some of you may be profoundly lonely. Look, you have a Savior that, that very much can identify with that. Uh, and not just as sort of the um, understands the data, right? He's God. He knows everything. He knows what it's like to be alone. 
He's been there. He's walked through it in the most ultimate ways. Um, right, as you face, as you face maybe death yourself, as you face the death of a loved one, um, as, you, as you wonder what God, what in the world God is doing about whatever circumstance in your life, as you're overwhelmed by life itself, maybe as you're depressed, as you're afraid, you can know that you have a Savior that knows exactly what that's like. And because He knows what, He doesn't just know what it's like so He can sort of offer you a pat on the back, but He can identify with you in it. And not only walk through you with it, but but He actually does this so He can fix it in an ultimate sense. And look, at the very least, we're we're at least able to think, like, why does God let us go through these things? Well, it it can't be because He doesn't care, right? Because what you see is Jesus doesn't make Himself immune to it. He puts Himself in the midst of in the midst of those dark times. Right? It's the difference, it's the difference between watching a documentary about prison life or, and living in prison, right? Those are very different. And what you see, you have a savior that he's lived it. That's good news. All right, thirdly and finally, um, we need to look at the question of what does Jesus face all alone? Uh, what is it, right? There's, if you're tracking, there might be this sort of big question that's still out there to answer. Um, what is it that's overwhelming Jesus so much? Um, people, you know, all over the centuries have wrestled with this and they've come up with various answers. Um, and in some ways, right, it makes sense because why is Jesus so overwhelmed? Uh, a lot of people have, have found this to be an embarrassing story that you sort of need to apologize for and figure out how it's okay. Um, because in some ways, it's a good question, right? I mean, this is Jesus. This is the Messiah that's going to save the world. And yet, he is just steamrolled by something. So what is it? Right, you can even look. There have been... In fact, there have really been maybe a lot of people that have faced death with a lot more poise than Jesus did. Christians. They've faced horrible deaths, and they've done it a whole lot more composed than Jesus. So what's the deal? Look, you have to understand that what Jesus is facing is is a whole lot more than just a physical death. In fact, that's... Look, I'm not making light of that at all. That's the least of his concern, the physical aspect. It's the reality behind that physical death that's overwhelming him. Jesus refers to it as uh, drinking the cup, right? The, the cup of God's wrath. You see it in the Old Testament, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Psalm 75, Ezekiel 23. He's going to take and drink that, that metaphorical cup of, of the wrath that God has for sin. He, he's going to take it. He's going to drink it down himself. All right, I want to read to you uh, a uh, couple of paragraphs 
from a, a theologian named Donald McLeod. And I know it's, it's bad, you know, they tell you not to do this kind of thing in preaching class, but hey, you know, I know what I'm doing. Um, this is just so good, I couldn't, I can't say it any better. I'm going to read these, just a couple paragraphs to you um, about what Jesus is facing. He says this, It's clear from all the accounts that Jesus' that Jesus's experience of turmoil and anguish was both real and profound. His sorrow was as great as a man could bear. His fear convulsive. His astonishment very near paralyzing. He came within a hair of breakdown. He faced the will of God as raw holiness in its most acute form and it terrified him. Long ago at his baptism, he had publicly embraced the messianic role, identifying himself totally with his people. In the temptations in the desert, he had already faced some of the implications of his position, as the enemy quickly unleashed three massive assaults. But the full implications of being the servant and the ransom dawned on him only gradually as he reflected on the scriptures, observed sin at work, and communed with his father. In Gethsemane, the whole terrible truth strikes home. The hour of reckoning has come. Now is the last moment to escape. Beyond it, there can be no turning back. When Moses saw the glory of God on Mount Sinai, so terrifying was the sight that he trembled with fear. But that was God in covenant. God in grace. What Christ saw in Gethsemane was God with the sword raised. And the sight was unbearable. In a few short hours, he would stand before that God, answering for the sin of the world, indeed identified with the sin of the world. He became, as Luther said, the greatest sinner that ever was. Consequently, to quote Luther again, no one ever feared death so much as this man. He feared it because, because for, him, for him it was no sleep, but the wages of sin. Death with the sting... Death unmodified and unmitigated. Death as involving all that sin deserved. He alone would face it without a covering, providing by his very dying the only covering for the world, but doing so as a holocaust, totally exposed to God's hatred of sin. And he would face death without God, deprived of the one solace and the one resource which had always been there. Last two sentences. The the wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know. He took damnation lovingly. Yeah, that's about as good as any person can say it. So look, hopefully, right, we're beginning, you begin to see what was so overwhelming to Jesus. To see, right, I said this was going to be a lesson about his grace and his, his love for us. Because what, what we see is that Jesus did think twice about this. He did, in a sense, stop and say, hang on. Is this really worth it? And what I want you to see is that facing that, Jesus came to the conclusion that He would rather face that, that He would rather die than be without you.
that he stared down the barrel of God's unmitigated wrath and the the prospect of being without you. And he said, absolutely, it's worth it. And so he died for his bride as his bride, taking on the sins of his people, the sins of the people that abandoned him, because he loved them. He loves us. And let, let me end with this. Like I said, the last time that we saw Jesus with just Peter, James, and John uh, was at the Transfiguration, uh, Mark chapter 9. We actually didn't uh, look at that passage in here. But, and I think these episodes are, are linked together in, in uh, several different ways. But right, what we see in our passage, you see Jesus fall on the ground right, in God's presence. And just this last thought, I actually want to dip into, into Matthew because I think Matthew makes this link uh, uh, very clear. And I want to share it with you. Um, in Matthew 26, uh, 26, 39, it says that Jesus fell on his face in the garden. And there's only, there's only two times that Matthew talks about where you see somebody fall on their face in God's presence. And the first time is exactly what we just said. Um, at the Transfiguration, Matthew 17, uh, yeah, Matthew 17, when God speaks from heaven, right, and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It goes on uh, right after that, 17 verses 6 through 8, listen to this. When the disciples, and that's just Peter, James, and John, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. But what we have here in the garden, right? We have sleepy, disinterested Peter, James, and John. And it's Jesus that falls on his face before God, terrified. Right? Do you begin to see it? But what happened when when Peter, James, and John, when they looked up, all they, they didn't look at, they didn't see the terrifying presence of God. They saw, they saw Jesus. They saw their, their gracious Savior. But when Jesus looks up from the ground, he sees, like Donald McLeod said, God with the sword raised. You see what he's done? He switched places with his people. He's, he's taken their place. So that he can look at us and say, rise, have no fear. That's the good news that's offered to you and to me tonight. I pray that you take it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we know that we have tread in waters that are too, uh, too deep for us. That we certainly don't understand them to their fullest. But Father, would you grant that we would understand them enough to lay hold of of what Jesus has done for us. And we ask it in his name. Amen.